Welcome to the 415th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome Ashton Verdery back to COVID Calls to talk about COVID bereavement and its long-term impacts on children and families. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. And as always, please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of February 16th, 2022, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center, the COVID death total in the United States is 928,034 lives lost. South Korea, going through its Omicron wave right now, reports 7,202 deaths from COVID-19. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is, a New Jersey mother of four died of COVID-19 before she could hold her newborn son. This appeared in mycentraljersey.com, published January 19th, 2022, was written by Cheryl Macon. Jell Stanny gave birth to her fourth child, a son named Jaden, on Christmas Eve, 2021. In announcing her pregnancy last fall, Stanny called Jaden an Irish twin to his sister Jordan, 11 months old, adding that he would even out her clan, two boys, and that he would even out her clan, two boys and two girls. Just three weeks later, Stani was gone. The 37-year-old died of COVID-19-related complications on January 12, 2022 at Robert Wood Johnson University Hospital in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Stani never got to hold her newborn son. Family and friends are left to warn Stani, whom they called a beautiful soul. Michelle Stanny is survived by her children, Samantha, 19, Noah, age four, Jordan, and Jaden. She's also survived by her parents, John and Susan Stanny, her partner, Frank Allen, and her two brothers, Sean and Jack Stanny, according to her obituary. Described by family and friends on social media as a vivacious, fun, and loving woman, Stanny was dedicated to children, her own, and the many she cared for and taught as a child care director. She valued education highly and loved being around children. Born in New Brunswick and raised in Franklin, New Jersey, Michelle Stanny earned education degrees from Raritan Valley Community College and Caldwell University. According to her obituary, she graduated last year from Rutgers University with a master's degree in education. October of 2021, she posted a photo of herself rocking her cap on the way to graduation ceremonies and planning to wear it all day. Before her graduation from Raritan Valley Community College, Stanny told a MyCentralJersey.com reporter that necessity started her career in early childhood education. 
I started working at a daycare center so I could make money and bring Samantha for free at the time. She said, who added, she added that a boss encouraged her to pursue studies in the field because she was good with children. Shelf Stanny overcame several hurdles to reach this milestone. She once lost her apartment because of a legal dispute with the complex's owner and was forced to seek shelter assistance. In her final semester at RVCC, she not only cared for her daughter while taking six classes, but also worked two jobs and accumulated field experience. When I really think about it, it's almost like a dream. I felt like I dreamt this was going to happen, but I could never picture how it would feel, Stanny said. It's very emotional for me and it feels really good. On social media, Samantha said she was so proud of her mother and her accomplishments, adding that she impacted so many people and is an inspiration. The story was a New Jersey mother of four died of COVID-19 before she could hold her newborn son. Michelle Stanny died January of 2022. Okay, I'd like to turn to the conversation for today, and I'm really pleased to bring Ashton Verdery back to COVID calls. Let me introduce him. Ashton M. Verdery, PhD, is an associate professor of sociology, demography, and computational and data science at the Pennsylvania State University. His research focuses on how changes in social and family networks influence health. Ashton, welcome back to COVID Calls. Thank you for having me back. I'm excited to be here. So I wanted to ask you, first of all, just as I usually do, just where you're calling from and, and what the pandemic situation is looking like there today. Yeah, I'm calling from State College, Pennsylvania. Um, it's a, a smallish college town in uh, the middle of the state of Pennsylvania. The pandemic situation, um, we suffered a relatively large spike uh, with the Omicron wave, um, but it has uh, you know, been returning uh, back to kind of a baseline level. Um, I believe we we're just about to cross uh, like 50 cases per 100,000 or something like that. So it's getting better. Um, and I think we're kind of on the downward slope um, of, a, of a difficult period, but um, it's, it feels nice with spring coming to, to have that uh, hope in the, in the air. And you're part of a college community there with one of the largest populations of college students anywhere in the world. Yes. So what kind of preparations, precautions, restrictions are underway right now? The university has, um, you know, uh, kind of free testing available for a lot of people. And the, the restrictions and other kind of rules that they've imposed have kind of varied over the year. Um, at one point, they had uh, kind of uh, vaccine verification um, and things like that. And if you were not vaccinated, you'd have to um, test more frequently. Um, they didn't want to call it a, a mandate, but it was sort of a you could be tested quite frequently or be vaccinated um, kind of uh, policy. In addition to those, um, there's still universal indoor masking um, on campus and in certain parts of the community, some of the um, kind of residential areas have different rules because um, there's a series of boroughs that all have different ordinances. But um, so there is uh, quite a bit of uh, masking and uh, many of the restaurants and local businesses are sort of uh, still enforcing that. So you were a guest on COVID calls uh, March 18th. I went back and looked March 18th, 2021. And uh, so I wanted to ask you maybe for kind of an update, just your own 
personal journey uh, in this COVID time in that in that last year. Anything really stand out to you? I think um, you know on a on a personal level, one thing that was incredibly exciting was uh, when my younger daughter, sorry, my older daughter, was able to get the vaccine. Um, she turned five in November, um, and her kind of eligibility for that really uh, made us feel a lot better. We were able to send. Um, children back to daycare at, at around that time and uh, made a number of other changes that has really uh, benefited our kind of um, work-life balance and happiness. And I think it's been very good for the kids to have more interaction with people other than me, um, telling them about random statistics and whatnot. So um, that, that has been really good. Um, we are still um, hoping for kind of the under five vaccines, but my understanding is that trial is um, taking longer than was originally anticipated. So that that isn't available for my younger daughter yet. But we still feel um, relatively confident our, their daycare is doing a great job. They've had very few cases. Um, and so that, that's been huge in, in my personal life. In terms of my research life, um, one of the big kind of shifts that I've made in the past year is from studying, um, you know, this COVID-19 related bereavement and health associations um, in the short term to beginning to think about uh, the magnitude of the long-term challenges that this will pose um, for different societies and, and health. Um, in addition, I've also been working extensively to contextualize um, this kind of acute shock that it came from the COVID-19 bereavement um, wave uh, against other bereavement uh, types and caused by other sorts and um, at different time periods um, in different places. So that's been um, occupying a lot of my research time as well. Uh, I'm picturing you describing your kids at home there and you're running a sort of statistics, uh, a home statistics training lab there. That's what we're trying for, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and congratulations! I'm glad your daughter could get get vaccinated. Was she? Did she have opinions about it? Did she? Was she looking forward? I know kids don't look forward to getting shots, but some kids, I think, were looking forward to participating in this way, doing their part. Yeah, she was actually. You know, I was surprised at the um, level of excitement that she had. You know, we had talked about it a bit, and we said, "Do you want to do it?" And she's like, "Yes, I want to do it as soon as possible." Um, and so she did it. She got the vaccine. And, um, you know, I think she just really wanted to kind of feel like a bigger kid, I think, was part of it. You know, it was knowing that it wasn't available to her because she was still four at the time. And then um, that when she was five, it would be available was a was a big motivator for her wanting to do it. And so um, maybe like getting your ears pierced or something like that, I think right. uh, kind of the same idea. She so she was very excited about that. And she picked out um, we let her get a special treat uh, for doing it. And she picked out a cookbook magazine of um, chocolate recipes. So it was actually a very smart play on her. That is smart. She's been getting an awful lot of chocolate because I keep having to make all these recipes in the cookbook for her. Oh my God, <laughs> what a brilliant move. That's amazing. <laughs> wow, that's great. Well, thank you for sharing all of that. Um, wonderful uh, to hear that that update. I, I wanna ask you also, the, you know, the last time we talked, um, the death toll at that time in the United States as reported by Johns Hopkins, was 538,095, and it was 2,682,931 deaths at that time, March 18th, 2021. I've been asking guests recently, and I really wanted to ask you, based on your expertise, just what you think of the landscape of counting generally around COVID. What kind of confidence do you have um, in, in these you know, particularly in the in the mortality numbers and the death numbers in the United States, but any other numbers um, 
because you're keeping a very close tab on on these sorts of things. And I just feel like among the expert community, I hear generally there's an undercount. But then once you go one level below that, I hear all, all kinds of things about what we should be paying attention to. So help me out with that. Right. There, there are a number of problems with the kind of death registration systems. Um, and it's really difficult to talk about it as a one-size-fits-all approach. So I guess I could say one thing generally about the world and then talk uh, more specifically about the U.S. Globally, um, one of the biggest challenges is that many, many countries in the world lack, um, for lack of a better word, adequate uh, vital registration systems. And so we really are flying blind on um, what kinds of uh, impacts this might have uh, in places in many, you know, sub-Saharan Africa, some Southeast Asian countries, um, uh, elsewhere in the world as well. And so, you know, the lack of vital registration systems really precludes us from understanding how big of a shock this might have been in some places. Um, and I think is a, a strategic weakness, um, both from a scientific standpoint in terms of we don't learn uh, as much as we could and, and therefore lack the ability to innovate and things like that, but also from a um, you know, a policy standpoint or even a strategic standpoint where um, we would want to know that there might be a spike, say, in, uh, you know, just to pick a country like Burkina Faso or something like that, um, of mortality from an unknown cause. And currently our, our systems to detect that sort of thing are rudimentary. I mean, there are some systems, but they're still a little bit rudimentary. And I think that improvements in those regards would pay uh, substantial dividends um, for countries like the United States to be able to detect um, things like this and potentially channel resources to mitigate future pandemics or something like that. So there are um, challenges globally. In terms of within the United States, the system is um, you know, relatively sophisticated compared to what I was describing um, in, in other places of the world, but still has a number of um, gaps and challenges. In particular, one of the challenges is it is uh, a decentralized system where um, you know, independent, independent coroners are making uh, decisions in different uh, locales. And there's, you know, there, there's sort of a lack of cohesive, agreed upon ways that things are decided uh, in those regards. Now, of course, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention does heroic uh, effort kind of coding things into um, underlying causes of death and things like that. But there still is a lot of um, slippage. And so there were some reports a few months back about um, coroners never classifying deaths as COVID because they didn't believe it and things like that, which I think is a, a, a quite a big challenge that we've faced. Um, and so I think continued improvement of death registration systems um, would really benefit uh, the, the world overall, but also um, the United States uh, and other kind of uh, rich countries. Do you think that Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, no. Keep going. Keep going. I was just going to ask you if you think this is an, an inflection point of some sort based on this un, almost unprecedented event in the United States. I would I would hope that this will um, increase kind of funding for uh, and, and efforts to have baseline systems of uh, kind of disease monitoring and things like that. You know, one of the other challenges that's related to this is is not just on the death counting side, but on the the general social survey side. Um, the things that the U.S. lacked that other countries had that I think was quite beneficial for them were kind of uh, nationally representative seroprevalence surveys so they could detect um, increases in cases and things like that from a principled standpoint rather than just looking at the number of cases in clinics where you don't know if that's because, uh, you know, more people are reporting to clinics or more people are infected. There's there's all sorts of reasons that um, a convenience sample like that would be a, would 
be problematic, but a kind of randomized sample where we can track um, people who are not infected becoming infected, I think would be quite beneficial. Um, and some states in the U.S. have had this. I believe like Indiana had this. Some of the universities pursued um, similar approaches. And I think that was quite successful in uh, ability to kind of mitigate some of the pandemic challenges. So thank you for that discussion. And um, just brief recap, because your work first came uh, across my screen in the summer of 2020. Um, and it was a really profound um, study that you uh, published in the Proceedings of the National Academies Sciences um, that summer with, with colleagues and, and introduced a concept which um, was called the grief multiplier, in which you're trying to understand um, the broader bereavement effects on families uh, and close connections for every death. And it was, you know, if we sort of take us back to that time in the summer of 2020, I mean, um, the deaths per day then were fewer than they are now, probably. I'd have to get those two, depending on what, when we were talking. But, um, but it was, I mean, the numbers at that time really made people sit up straight. And, and, then, and then you introduced this grief multiplier concept, which took it much further and talked about, you know, what a single death actually means is much more than people are, are talking about and realizing. That was an important study, I think, for a lot of people. And there was research that followed that. Next year, as you dug a little deeper um, and to try to understand the further dimensions of that, including the racial dimensions of that in the United States. I'm not nearly doing this service, but I just wanted to you know, lay a little of the groundwork. You published a piece um, with your colleagues, Rachel Kidman, Rachel Margolis, and Emily Smith Greenaway in um, the Washington Post in, I believe, April of 2021. And there you summarized uh, one of your more recent studies in Journal of American Medical Association Pediatrics. I'm just going to quote one sentence from it. You argued there that for every 13 COVID-19 deaths, one child under the age of 18 loses a parent. And you estimated then that 40,000 children in the United States have lost a parent to COVID-19 since February of 2020. So it's a tremendous body of work because it's, first of all, you're talking about bereavement and the multiplier, and then you zero in on, on children and on the racial aspects of it. What, did I, what else should I emphasize there? I think for people who want to go back and listen to the previous COVID calls um, can hear more about it in detail, but how you see that work now and what parts of it should I, should I have described more, more clearly? Well, you, you described it um, phenomenally clearly. Um, you know, it's funny, I went back and listened, and I believe I referenced a kind of paper that was under embargo that I couldn't talk about too much. Um, that was that that manuscript. And, you know, I guess I didn't get in trouble, so that's good. Um, but the, I think we were some of the, one of the earliest groups to recognize that even though COVID-19 skews old in terms of its deaths, um, older adults are much more likely to die than younger adults. Um, the sheer magnitude of the pandemic and, you know, a non-trivial death rate among people in their 40s and 50s um, is enough to kind of result in a lot, large number of children losing um, a parent to the disease. And I think, you know, thinking through that, the scale of that, we we were quite shocked that it was, um, you know, 40,000 at the time. Subsequent analyses have uh, suggested it might even be um, substantially higher now. I believe um, there's a group uh, with Susan Hillis is one of the authors and uh, Imperial College of London um, has 
an online resource where you can sort of track uh, in different countries uh, children who have lost caregivers. Um, and I believe the estimate that they've come up with is over 200,000 by this point. Um, and the pandemic shifting into younger ages has kind of shifted uh, and made it even uh, more consequential um, for children, a larger number of them. And so I, I was very interested in kind of trying to get the information out there that this is not just something that affects I mean, you know, uh, individuals who are older adults, but it affects people of all ages. And and when you start thinking of our relationships among people and that people are connected to others, you know, these deaths reverberate in society in ways that um, the raw statistics on, you know, the age of people who die or the raw numbers of people who die don't capture um, the magnitude of the kind of the the echo that these things uh, create in um, the lives of people who have lost uh lost loved ones. Um, I think of that story that you, uh, the obituary you read at the beginning of this, um, speaking about uh, Michelle, uh, was it Slani, and her children, and, you know, they're going to grow up um, in very different circumstances because of this disease um, than they would have in the absence of it. In the opinion piece that you published in um, last year in the Washington Post, and, and, and so that's, you know, the context there is early in the Biden administration, and um, I was going to quote, it's, it's a really well written piece and very clear asking for intervention. Uh, quoting here, these children need our help. Universal policies to support vulnerable families are a good start. Many of President Biden's policy proposals address the collateral damage parental death can cause, such as food insecurity and an absence of high quality affordable child care. High on our priority list would be providing the resources to open school safety. And, and you go on and talk about other sorts of interventions. So almost a year later, what do you think? I mean, has there been substantial policy intervention to take account for the impact on children? In terms of tailored policies, I don't think that there has been um, substantial intervention. In terms of um, sort of general policies, uh, my understanding was that, you know, the Biden tax credit was having a number of um, kind of ancillary benefit uh, benefits for children, the expanded child tax credits and things like that, um, re greatly reduced child poverty and um, things like that. And those are the sorts of things that I think would help. Um, I believe there's also substantial funding for kind of upgrading infrastructure in schools um, that, that maybe helped uh, reopen. Um, in terms of tailored policies for children who lose parents to um, this disease, I think that there's still a, a bit of a stall on that. And I wish that there would be um, more movement. I think that the most likely way that there will be more movement on that is if we recognize that these are not the only children who lose their parents. Um, and that if we recognize that, you know, this COVID crisis has created an extra 20% in our estimates um, per year of children who are losing uh, parents, but that there's still a large number of other children who lose parents to other diseases as well. And I think that maybe bundling um, some of the concerns with the opioid crisis, um, the, uh, you know, the broader homicide crisis, um, the suicide crisis, and the COVID crisis might direct some more attention towards uh, the very large number of children who lose parents um, and otherwise fare poorly. There's a great study by David Weaver, which shows um, that children who lose parents uh, before the age of 18, um, just in general, fare, uh, face a more difficult future. Um, they are less likely to complete higher education and have lower earnings in adulthood and other things like that. Um, but that the children who have greater kind of access to support, um, particularly governmental support, um, tend to do better within uh, that difficult circumstance. And so I, I hope that that um, 
work continues to catalyze um, kind of congressional action. And my sense is that there is some uh, kind of congressional action on this. Um, I was watching a briefing the other day with um, the uh, Surgeon General. Uh, there was some discussion of you know children who have lost uh, parents to COVID-19 and children who have lost parents to other diseases and the long-term health ramifications of that. Um, and so hopefully there will be some action on this. Let me just ask you a few of the nuances of this, one of which has to do with how we can get past death in in terms of taking stock of the impact on children. Uh, but, I mean, long COVID, the numbers, again, are sort of all over the place in terms of, you know, what the overall numbers of long COVID cases may be or how to even predict that going forward. And it's different, different countries. I've seen different numbers reported in Europe, the United States. Um, but we are potentially looking, in, in addition to what you described, um, causes of death during this COVID era, um, all kinds of long-term disability or just parents in general being sick, some of them multiple times even after having been vaccinated. How do you think about those kinds of impacts on families and on children specifically? I think it's um, it's a big challenge for children. Um, I think that the years without school also have, have taken quite a toll and you can see huge educational disparities widening um, as well. In terms of uh, families, you know, I, I haven't monitored the data uh, closely on say divorce or fertility or things like that, but many countries are registering some of the lowest fertility rates um, that they've ever recorded. I know China's was incredibly low this year. The US I believe is quite low this year. Um, so there, there are indications that um, some family formation aspects are being kind of impacted um, by this and people might be delaying childbirth and things like that. Um, in terms of divorces, I don't, I don't know about uh, kind of family dissolution sort of things, um, but I would expect that the difficulty that this crisis has imposed on families will in the future um, create possibly new levels of divorce and um, other challenges as well. Um, it's, it's been a stressful time for, for parents, I think. And what's the geographical, when we take into account how these impacts might be playing out in different parts of the country, is it uniform? Um, so the children who have lost um, parents are, are far from uniform. Um, one, there's been a big racial disparity within that, um, where uh, non-Hispanic black individuals and non-Hispanic, uh, or sorry, and Hispanic individuals have had the highest levels of loss of caregivers and parents um, mm -hmm. from uh, COVID-19. Um, and it is concentrated in certain parts of the country in ways that I think were, were a little bit surprising. I referenced a paper by um, Susan Hillis and colleagues, um, and I'll, I'll refer back to that same paper, I believe it's in pediatrics. And they have some maps of where um, these impacts have been the hardest. And I was quite shocked um, that, you know, some of the places it looked like, I believe the Rio Grande Valley in, um, in Texas had quite high rates, for instance, um, and other places had, had lower rates. And it didn't quite accord with my sense of where virus, uh, the virus severity or the death statistics have been the highest. So um, there has been kind of differences uh, that, are, that lead to kind of nuances in those regards. Um, in terms of challenges, uh, I believe that there's a widening gap between like what people in the U.S. refer to as like red counties and blue counties, um, whether they voted for Trump or Biden, um, uh, in terms of kind of COVID-19 death rates. And I expect that those are um, contributing to some of these challenges uh, in the bereavement uh, space as well. Um, early on, the pandemic was concentrated in um, kind of urban areas, New York, New Jersey, um, and things like that. And 
so I think that a lot of the bereavement of the first wave was felt uh, in those places, but subsequent uh, impacts I think have been more broadly diffused uh, throughout the country um, and you know, been a big, big factor in that. I wanted to follow up also about the um, bereavement concept generally and, and how it may be impacted by factors of scale and time because it, um, and, and so maybe you could even just, you know, kind of define bereavement as it's used by researchers like yourself. But, but also, I'm, you know, we're two years into this pandemic, and I don't in general like war as a metaphor because I think we have other things we can reach to, um, other pandemics, for example. However, I do think about, you know, the analogy of war, you know, dragging on for multiple years and this sort of notion of desensitization. And so I, I wonder, I mean, does bereavement mean the same thing to you as a researcher in the summer of 2020 as it as it does now? Do, do people somehow become more inured to loss as time goes on? Or is that not the right way to think about this? Right. So um, I guess one thing is uh, there's some definitional issues that I think would, would help. Uh, one is, you know, generally people distinguish between the idea of bereavement, which is just the fact of a loss, the fact of a loss of a, lo a loss of a loved one, um, and then the sort of uh, feelings uh, about that, which might include grief, um, which is sort of uh, being upset about the loss, and then um, actual kind of uh, psychological disorders, including like post-traumatic uh, stress disorder, um, uh, you know. Uh, some of the grief disorders and things like that, um, that that might be un, um, basically unhealthy responses to grief. Um, and so, you know, what we looked at in that first uh, article where we were trying to document um, how many people lose a loved one, uh, in that article, we were looking at bereavement, just the fact of a loss. So we were unable to look at um, grief or depression or any of the kind of psychological conditions that might arise from that. Um, in subsequent work, we did uh, establish that uh, those who lost loved ones to COVID-19 had much higher rates of depression than others um, in their society. Um, and in that uh, paper, which came out in Journal of Gerontology Social Scientists last year um, with Howei Wong as the uh, principal author, in that paper, we tested whether these, whether the experience of grief, uh, sorry, experience of depression that might um, uh, come about after uh, a bereavement event was larger in countries where there was more bereavement or less bereavement. We didn't find any difference between countries uh, in those regards. Um, now that said, we I, I have a sneaking suspicion that country is not the right level to look at that kind of um, thing, that perhaps it aggregates a little bit too much and you'd want to really compare maybe cities or states or counties that had larger amounts and, and smaller amounts. Um, but we're just not able to do that with the data that was available. Um, what we are looking at now is whether that is, you know, changed over time. Has it persisted longer in different places and things like that? We don't have answers to that, but that's um, some of the kind of current research questions that we're, we're investigating. And 
that's that's really fascinating. So, and that's an important distinction. And thank you for that distinction to make. I mean, that early on, you're you're really just taking stock of who might have the likelihood to to people are bereaved, but then what are the, what's the impact of that over time, and who will have the likelihood of having longer term impacts? And it seems like that. So that's the direction of your research going forward. Then I suppose trying to understand those impacts over time. So. Explain a little bit some of the questions that you're that you're asking here. For example, you were talking about post-traumatic stress and other kinds of related disorders. What kind of timeframes are you talking about here? I mean, are you going to be following um, a generation or even intergenerational impacts of COVID nineteen, and what are you looking for? Right. So we um, we have a series of papers on this, and I don't want to like bore you with all the all the details of paper A and B and stuff. But um, one of them is looking at whether those who were bereaved, um, who lost a, a, a spouse um, or a other loved one to COVID-19, so the person who died, died of COVID-19, whether they are faring worse than comparable people who lost um, someone to a disease, uh, a different disease, say a heart attack or something like that. Um, and what we found in, in that manuscript is, and, and that should, we're hoping that it'll come out soon. Um, what we found in that manuscript is that it is worse, um, that losing someone to COVID-19 is worse. We were not able to distinguish whether that is because of the time period, um, so like you know the restrictions on funeral gatherings and things like that, versus being because of losing someone to a disease where they die suddenly um, with a substantial amount of medical intervention and, and what is classically called the bad death. Um, so we, we haven't distinguished that, but we can say that losing someone to COVID-19 appears to, at least in the first three months after the event, um, be associated with worse kind of mental health symptoms. And what I think is very scary about this is that there's a substantial amount of research that shows that people who have the, the most severe mental health responses to a bereavement event subsequently have the greatest health declines that can be attributed to that bereavement event, um, subsequently have greater mortality that is attributable to the bereavement event, um, and things like that. So it's almost like a an early warning sign or a risk, you know, a, like a, a flag that says this is um, a person that might be in particular trouble. And um, our results suggest that not only are there a much larger number of people bereaved because of COVID-19, but that these bereavements are also worse um, in terms of short-term mental health challenges that they're facing, um, which I think portends um, a potentially dire future uh, in terms of the health risks that these people might face. So that's sort of a, a couple kind of projects that we're working on in the short term. Um, and what we're working on in the in the more intermediate term um, in terms of impacts is looking to see whether those individuals actually do um, pass away uh, at quicker rates, whether they do develop um, additional uh, physical health challenges, high blood pressure, um, things like that, that portend um, kind of earlier mortality in, in the longer term. And also whether they develop um, dementia. There's a body of research suggesting that we may contribute to um, dementia through kind of loneliness and other mechanisms. Um, Deborah Umberson has a, a number of papers about this. Um, and so we're looking at whether there are increased dementia um, risks for people that experience this as well. So that's sort of like moving from a three-month short-term mental health window to a maybe six-month to two-year mortality and, and kind of chronic conditions window. And then I have another manuscript um, coming up soon. One second. That we'll be presenting um, this spring that looks at the kind of population uh, the long-term population impacts of this. So how quickly does the bereaved population uh, from COVID-19 kind of age out of the population? And obviously, mm. the 
spouses, uh, people who lose spouses to COVID-19 will eventually pass away. Um, but the people who lost their parents might be around for 40 or 50 years. Um, and so we're looking at how different countries might be experiencing, um, for lack of a better word, churn in their populations of people who were exposed to this bereavement event and how that might um, play out in the next 40 or 50 years. So you're working at three different scales, at, at least here. And so let me follow up a little bit. What kind of analogs are you are you working with historically? I mean, as a historian, I'm, I'm really curious, you know, um, can we come back to, to war or maybe 1918, 1919 um, influenza pandemic? What are you working from? Where's the body of data that helps you understand what we're comparing this wave of bereavement to? So um, the one of the comparisons that we are trying to do is um, some of the wars um, that the United States has experienced, which were very different um, mortality profiles. You know, the World War II, right. uh, you know, almost everyone who died was was under 35 because that was sort of the soldier eligibility age and things like that. So we are making some comparisons to that. Um, in addition, um, we're sort of drawing from some theoretical insights. Uh, there's a great manuscript by um, Diego Algures uh, Gutierrez. Um, that looks at the genocide in, um, oh, now I'm gonna, I'm not gonna in, say the country and I'm gonna feel like a fool. In Rwanda or in? Uh, it was El Salvador or Guatemala. And I, I should have looked this up before I brought it up. I believe it was Guatemala. Um, and there was a, a genocide that occurred and he looks at sort of this population memory of um, mm. the experience of this genocide among uh, this indigenous group that that experienced it. And it, you know, one thing that is, really interesting about the manuscript is he finds that actually the proportion of the population who um, lost a loved one to this disease, uh, sorry, to this genocide, um, actually grows over time. Um, when you start accounting for people who's, um, you know, never grew up, uh, who grew up without their grandparents around and things like that. Um, as the population grows, um, you actually sort of the, the holes are, are almost magnified. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's a really fascinating study in those regards. Um, but it also, one thing I like about that study is it brings up the issue that we talked about earlier with data and things like that. Um, the only reason he was able to do that study is because there were, um, there happened to be some census, uh, censuses taken. I believe one was taken by a power company um, for in the area where they sort of knew all the, the population. And they were able to compare um, exactly who was lost and then track that over time. Um, and so it sort of speaks to the power that this data can have to kind of witness these events um, and better prepare us to understand um, disasters, which I think is a, a broad challenge that um, we still face because we don't have great data in many places. The, I mean, it's what a research challenge going back to your, you were talking earlier about the, um, your really interesting findings that COVID bereavement seems to be worse, more impactful than other kinds of bereavement based on your sort of early studies right now. And, and, and you suggested a few reasons, possible reasons for that you know, related to this sort of bad death concept, something that could have been avoided or something that happened suddenly. Um, I, I wonder if you could say a little bit bit more about that and, and if that will change. We're going to continue to have COVID deaths around the world and in the United States for a long time. Does the impact of the bereavement decline as the overall numbers decline, as the medical interventions get better? Again, I'm just sort of trying to get at the problems of following this as a research problem over months and ultimately years, which it seems like you are going to be doing. Right. I know it's a lot, <laughs> lot on the uh, kind of research docket. Um, 
you, you had Debbie Carr, I believe, on your show at some point. I did. And, you know, she discussed this concept of a bad death. She's done um, substantial work on this concept. Um, and, but, you know, broadly put, I think bad deaths can be summarized as those that um, make individuals, uh, well, first, that when the person dies, um, they when they're in pain, when it's unexpected, um, when there are a substantial amount of medical interventions, when there is um, a lack of ability to kind of be with the person or sit with them, um, those things all kind of exacerbate bad deaths. Uh, but she has a great paper about uh, the COVID-19 crisis and how it is likely to you know, cause these bad deaths um, that kind of moves beyond just thinking about the person who died's circumstance, which is um, very important, but also bad deaths are exacerbated when it increases financial strain for individuals, when their other supports are not there. And I think the early portion of the COVID-19 crisis really uh, exemplified that. Many people were out of work, um, chasing around children, um, trying to care for loved ones, all those sorts of things. Um, and that made it a, uh, you know, kind of compounded the problem. And then to make it even worse, there were these restrictions on funerals. There were all these other things that um, made it very difficult. And so my hypothesis, although the, you know, we can't examine this, um, build, built from Debbie's work, would be that as those latter um, two kind of uh, items go away, as, as the financial turmoil that COVID originally wrought um, subsides, and as um, these restrictions on kind of gathering and things like that uh, dissipate, then, you know, it should be a little bit less bad. Um, but it's still unclear whether, uh, you know, the extent to which these bad deaths were, uh, you know, driving it or whether it was something about the circumstances of the COVID-19 crisis or it was something about the circumstances of COVID-19 itself, if that makes sense. If it's a crisis factor or a, or a disease factor, does that make sense? It does. And there's another variable I wanted to, to bring in related to COVID. And um, it's been on my mind since the news recently about the Sandy Hook parents who won a major court case, um, I believe, quite recently um, against gun manufacturers and also won a court case, uh, some of the parents against um, against a, a misinformation uh, website and uh, as Alex Jones. And um, so COVID is, so every disaster has its um, detractors. And I think that's one of the things we find pretty consistently in disaster research. There's a sort of a pro-social phase, people helping. Um, but there's also a lot of antisocial aspects related and victims often get blamed. Is that, a, is that another feature here that you can somehow capture in the, in the data or, or, or work on intuition now and try to, try to understand over time? Because of any disaster I've seen or studied in American history, the victim blaming the outright misinformation, the violence um, against survivors um, and healthcare workers, it's pretty much off the charts. And I wonder how that folds in again to these sort of longer term problems of bereavement and coping with a bad death. I, I do think that that likely plays a role. Um, there's a book by Nicholas Christakis called Apollo's Arrow, and he, he describes, um, he said he has a great quote in there, something like the, the fifth horseman of the apocalypse is misinformation. Um, and I really thought that that was a, a very true, at least uh, in the COVID crisis. I do think that people um, losing a loved one to um, COVID-19 early on and, and perhaps still to this day, um, individuals uh, might, you know, there might be people who don't believe them or accuse them of uh, making it up or 
um, things like that. You've certainly seen people accusing hospitals of you know falsely coding death statistics um, and things like that to to get money or somehow. Uh, it never was clear on the mechanism by which this would work, but um, somehow kind of uh, you know use it to you know illicitly gain money or something. Um, and so I, I imagine that that kind of feelings of loneliness um, would uh, would exacerbate the challenges associated with this. Um, in terms of you know, individuals and families, um, I imagine that part of the problem might also be um, kind of family-based rifts that, that people are experiencing, um, you know, not talking to um, siblings or something like that because of, you know, politicize, uh, politicization of aspects of the virus. Um, and I've certainly read a number of op-eds by people who lost loved ones to COVID-19 um, who describe feeling left behind um, by society as people are out dancing in the streets um, last summer when, um, vaccines were, were pretty broadly available in the United States and cases were low. Um, people felt, I think, quite left behind uh, in, you know, by, by this crisis and as if their grief was not being remembered properly. Um, and so I'd be curious to see how that plays out over time. I'm not aware of any um, quantitative research that has examined that, but it could be a very fruitful topic for um, additional uh, kind of uh, interview-based studies or something like that. I know that the uh, family is is sort of at the core of the sort of analytical units that you work with, and that's the data that's um, often available. But I've also been thinking about occupational groups, and I had um, physician, uh, infectious disease physician Peter Chin Hong on yesterday, and he was talking about the problem of moral injury for healthcare workers. Um, so that they're treating people and being treated badly either by their employers or by, in some cases, those that they're trying to save or unvaccinated people who are in the ER. Um, there's that. And then there's also the high rate of illness and death among healthcare workers who continue to be at the front lines throughout this. Is some of the work you're doing, is, is there a way to work uh, to extend some of those insights to occupational types? I think here also previous disasters like September 11, in which the occupational groups say, you know, first responders, firefighters, um, their bereavement um, was so intense that then there was a following wave of mental um, stress, health impacts, and those have been traced out now over 20 years. Pretty significant impacts, I think. Yeah, I mean, shockingly significant. In fact, um, Rachel uh, Kidman, who you discussed uh, earlier and had on the show before, her colleague, um, Sean Clouston, who I've co-authored with, has done some of this uh, uh, work on the 9-11 first responders and, um, you know, the elevated rates of uh, stress and Alzheimer's and um, all sorts of health uh, challenges that they faced are quite shocking. Um, in terms of occupational groups, I do think it would be um, feasible to extend it. It's not um, something that I'm planning to, to look at, but I do think uh, it, would, it would be worthwhile to extend some of the work that we've considered in these regards uh, to those groups. Um, you know, the, the healthcare workers are, are a resource um, that, you know, underpins our society. And, and I guess one thing that COVID has laid bare for a lot of people, I think, is all these things that we just sort of expected to work in the background. We're realizing work because of people. And when those people are damaged and, um, you know, uh, when they die and things like that, the system kind of comes more to a halt than we, than we I think, would have anticipated um, pre-COVID. And at least for me, that's been um, kind of shocking, you know, when the daycare closes because the teachers aren't there, not, not just uh, uh, not just because it wants to close. Um, and so I think that that's been um, a real challenge with COVID-19 that has laid bare this kind of way in which our society is driven by people working together um, or failing to. 
Let me ask you a researcher's question, just tying back to um, some of the projects you were describing that are underway right now. Um, you've been working with large data sets. Um, as, the, as it becomes a more of a sort of longitudinal study that may go on, we were just talking about September 11. Um, you may be working on this that long. I mean, certainly, I think some researchers will be working on this for their entire careers. Do you, do you narrow the focus somehow? I mean, do you then try to find a cohort that you can work with and follow over a, a long you know, period of time? Do you, do you try to zero in, um, you know, when there are other maybe important moments like five-year, 10-year anniversaries and things like that? Like, how, how do you think about building the longitudinal study so that you can make further sense of the insights that you have right now? Right. So I think that there are sort of two general strategies um, that I'm pursuing. One is um, continuing to work with large-scale secondary data sets that um, sort of were in existence and, and planned to be in existence um, beyond COVID-19. Um, and one of the you know, surveys that we're using is the Survey of Health, Aging, and Retirement in Europe, um, where it's a very large sample of 60,000 individuals um, over the age of 50, and it sort of refreshes every couple of years, and they're following these people um, you know, un until they die, basically. Um, and so we're able to pick up a large number of individuals who had COVID-19, who lost loved ones to COVID-19, et cetera. And we expect that we'll be able to follow them um, through multiple cohorts. Um, we have similar kind of projects planned with various uh, US-based uh, studies and, and other studies in other countries um, that are kind of comparable. Um, so that's sort of this like large-scale secondary data analysis. The gap there, I think, is that in particular, uh, children uh, are not well studied in these large cohorts. Uh, and that um, really precludes ability to kind of study like the long-term health impacts for, for children of, of this disease. And that's um, one of those kind of data failures that I think would, would be nice to, to remedy um, in general. Uh, in terms of the alternate strategy to kind of look at this, I have a project um, in review now with um, some colleagues uh, from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, where we're using census-based data um, and linking it to uh, uh, kind of alternate sources of data, including health records and things like that, to be able to examine um, similar ideas sort of um, using administrative data. Um, and we could, with that, potentially follow people um, over time and sort of build without, with a non-survey-based um, data platform, um, a, a study of uh, like a, a cohort that we could look at these sorts of things. Um, but that's in development. It'll be several years before we're able to um, to do that. And the, the reason that you uh, have trouble studying children in general, and then more specifically with COVID, it has to do with privacy for those who are minors. It has to do with unwillingness of parents to enroll children in studies. What's the, what's the complication? So there are some um, cohort studies of children um, out there. Um, but they're not, they tend to be, uh, I guess, very educational focused, for instance. Um, there's a lot of, of course, yeah. them that focus on that, that sort of thing. And so they might not pick up that sort of uh, exposure um, within the survey. Um, in addition, they, you know, there, there just are not a ton of them that are widely uh, used. Like there's, there's some like, so the Eccles survey is one early childhood longitudinal educational study. Um, and there, there are some that, that go on, but they're not, um, they're not as continuously refreshed among young children. Um, and so there, there are some uh, challenges with this. I mean, that said, there, there are studies that you could do this with. I just, I don't 
they're not the ones that I'm uh, as familiar with. It's a, in addition, I, I should say, yeah. um, the loss of a parent or other close relative for children, um, even though a large number of children have lost someone, it's still a quite rare event. And so if you have a study of 10,000 people, uh, 10,000 kids under 18, that's a, a Herculean task to find them and survey them over time. Um, and there, so there are some studies like that, but you're not going to get a large number of them who have lost um, a parent to COVID-19 in a study like that. And so you wouldn't be able to really study those individuals, um, you know, very precisely because you might only get 15 or something like that. Does that make sense? Wanna, yeah, it does. It, it does make sense. But at the, at the same time, I mean, those numbers might be, might seem relatively small, but, you know, and what we've been discussing um they could become magnified over time, depending on the health impacts that those people have that then reverberate and create a sort of a, um, you know, uh, a cycle or an intergenerational experience of bereavement um, for things that might go well beyond COVID, mental health, stress, suicide, or other kinds of diseases. So um, I, let me just re remind folks that you're listening to COVID calls. I'm almost out of time um, with Ashton Verdery. We get so, I get so interested in what you're talking about. I forget to remind people they're listening to COVID calls. Um, I wanted to ask you about activism, Ashton. Um, I mean, you, you did write this piece in the Washington Post, and it's it it made some you know a translation of data into a call for action in the political space, and you chose to publish that in the national platform. Um, I don't know if you call yourself an activist, but I do wonder um, two levels. You know, yourself and your colleagues. Um, when you think about actions you can take that go beyond peer-reviewed papers, what are those actions? And I think by extension, many of us listening will want to know what we can do to support. You know, I, I think that the, the um, anti-vaxxers and the angry people and the truckers get a lot of news coverage, and I understand why they do, but there's an enormous reservoir of empathy and support out there too, and we all encounter it every day, and that needs to be supported. And so I'd like to hear from you how you think people can can support those who are bereaved. I think, um, you know, I've always struggled with the activism science uh, divide, and I guess I've always found myself more inclined towards um, I would like to write the report and let other people make policies on the basis of it because I don't have the training or the you know the capacity to really do that. And I think COVID um, sort of has thrust me a little bit more um, onto the side of speaking about policies that I think would make sense than than I historically had been comfortable with. And this is definitely, um, you know, I guess maybe I wouldn't say I was dragged unwillingly, but I was certainly. Uh, helped along the way by my fantastic co-authors, Rachel Kidman, Margolis, um, uh, and Emily Smith-Greenaway, um, in terms of kind of being able to say, no, we, you know, the, the implications of this are clear. We should say that uh, if we think it. Um, but my own, my own personal philosophy on it is I, I would always rather um, be trying to present the best possible information that I can and let people make the decisions on the basis of that. You know, I just, I believe in activism in my personal life, but like scientific life, I've, I found um, it's it's a challenge for me to to really strongly do that outside of, you know, some circumstances. Um, but that said, I think this crisis, you know, the the implications were, you know, so, so clear to us that we felt, uh, that I felt, you know, that it was worthwhile for us to um, pursue the path that my co-authors were, were interested in pursuing. Um, in terms of how individuals uh, around the country in this, uh, 
you know, to tap into this well of empathy. I think that coming up with policies that prevent these problems um, would be hugely uh, beneficial. Um, you know, I think we need better preparedness for pandemic planning in the future. We need better disaster preparedness overall. Um, I think that we also could recognize that some risk factors are mitigatable. Um, and, you know, the loss of a, a parent one was, is relatively clear. The research is, is shockingly clear, in my opinion, that children who receive government benefits, um, you know, Social Security uh, from when their parents die and things like that, uh, you know, succeed much at much higher rates than children who fail to receive those things um, in the similar circumstances, and that we're not reaching all of those kids. Um, this is a policy that exists. You know, Social Security gives uh, children whose parents were eligible um, survivor benefits, but we're not reaching all of them. I mean, that seems like a gap we could very easily uh, close, whether your um, whatever your policy opinions are. Um, I think we could we could make an effort to close that gap. And so I think working um, with representatives to kind of close that would, would make sense. Continuing to expand some of these um, or maintain some of these expanded child tax credits and things like that, I think also would be beneficial because um, the evidence is quite clear that the largest group in poverty in the U.S. Um, in the last you know, couple of decades has been children um, and that this, uh, you know, the recent expansions of child tax credits have, has slashed that poverty rate um, enormously. And so I think, you know, continuing to, to concentrate efforts in those regards would, would be very beneficial as well. Well, we're just out of time. I want to get some sneak one more question and it's sort of thinking into the future. And I'm, I'm always thinking about memorials and modes of social healing. Do you have, you know, an intuition that if we actually can get a proper memorialization process underway for COVID, that it will perhaps meet some of these bereavement effects, that it might lessen some of the bereavement effects for people over, over time? Like a COVID Memorial Day, for example, which uh, Kristen Urquiza and the Mark by COVID group have been pushing for, you know, something that does give people a way to to grieve publicly and and heal. Is is that is something that you would look for as a way to to blunt these impacts over time? I think that you know this is me speaking without uh, the benefit of evidence, but yeah, I, do. I, I make you uncomfortable when I get you away from the data. I realize that. I'm sorry, but I, I, I you're so knowledgeable on these issues. I really wanted to ask you. I think it would be, I think it would be a good thing. Um, I think it would be a, a moral and just thing to do. Um, and I also think that it is a strategically uh, a good idea, not just um, in terms of, you know, assuaging um, the grief of, of individuals who've experienced this, but also creating this milestone of, you know, why do we mark this? And, and I think we still mark, um, you know, Veterans Day and things like that. And it brings up recollections of long-term challenges that we've, uh, we've faced as a country and, and stops us from forgetting, um, like, you know, the United States, we don't want to forget 9-11. We want to remember um, the challenges that, that that posed for the country. Pearl Harbor is similarly. And I think marking the, the deaths from COVID-19 might have a similar impact. One of the big... Um, you know, potential explanations for the failure of uh, policy response to COVID-19 is that we largely forgot about the uh, the 1918 flu pandemic and even the 1950s uh, flu pandemics as well. Um, and I think that 
having a way to remember that um, that persists beyond uh, the the generation who experienced it would also be very beneficial. And um, you know, the death uh, is of a scale that I think it would would make sense um, to do so. I just want to remind folks you've been listening to COVID calls, and you can usually catch COVID calls now live at 7 p.m. Eastern time weekdays, and we'll have uh, lots of days coming up with multiple COVID calls as we move towards the two-year mark on March 16th of this year. And so um, please do stay tuned for that. And I want to thank my return guest, Ashton Verdery, who's also been responsible for opportunities to interview your colleagues and um, the ripple of effect that's a positive research multiplier effect in this instance. Um, you've opened my mind to a whole way of thinking about disasters that really I just didn't, was very murky to me before, Ashton. You're, you're a great researcher and a good teacher, and I really appreciate you coming on spending this time. Well, thank you. Yeah, I'm really excited to get to talk to you. And um, I, th I think the ability, you know, sociologists and historians should chat more often, I would say. We can learn <laughs> a lot from each other. Well said. I'll leave it with that. Ashton Verdery, thanks again for your time on COVID Calls. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you next time. Thank you.